Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. All right. How many of you like mystery, mystery stories, fantasy stories? Anyone? Not, oh, no mystery folk here. How about a story where you, you begin to realize there's more going on than you thought? Anyone? Is there anyone here who likes Stranger Things? Okay, there's a few hands. <laughs> Stranger Things is one of the latest, you know, latest and greatest. And one of the things we love about Stranger Things is, of course, there's more going on than meets the eye. Wink, wink. And you're trying to figure out what it is, and these brilliant writers are able to do, you know, stuff where you thought one thing, but then something else is going on. I love it. And often we like those kinds of stories where as you get into the story, you realize, oh, there's more, there's more that's been going on behind the scenes that I was aware of, and that's often the sign of a really good writer, right? Because as the story unfolds, you realize, oh my goodness, I was missing a whole bunch. And now I understand, and there's a whole other level of depth to this story. Well, we've been exploring the Holy Spirit this summer and trying to understand some of the work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that this uh, third person of the Trinity is, is real, a real person who's involved in our lives and, and all that the Holy Spirit is doing? We've been exploring that. Well, when we think of things that are going on beyond our view or maybe beyond what we realize, that is never more true than when we speak of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to look at today, kind of explore how the Holy Spirit is often at work beyond what we can see or know. Uh, often before we were born and certainly after we have gone, the Holy Spirit is at work. In particular, we're going to explore today how the Holy Spirit is at work in helping people find Jesus, in pointing people and preparing the way so that people who are far away can actually find life through Jesus. Here's the truth I think we need to remember. We've been exploring a lot of different things around the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that the same Holy Spirit who hovered over creation, who who is still bringing all of creation to its intended full potential, who worked for millennia to form up a holy people of God, the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary, who then empowered Jesus himself for his father's mission to the world. And then after that, after Jesus had died, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and then came to fill the church. This same Holy Spirit who lives in us now, in his people now, in you and I, anyone who confesses Jesus, the same Holy Spirit is still out there working. Working, working, working within the very fabric of time, history, space to make it possible for more and more people to find life and freedom through Jesus Christ. Thanks. I promise you I'm better, but with, with singing and then, yeah, throat's feeling a little tired. <clears throat> So the Holy Spirit, I think helping people find Jesus is like his favorite thing. It's like, 
if he were to get up in the morning, which he doesn't because he doesn't sleep, but that's what he would be doing. You know, that's what he'd be all, all over about. He's devoted to it. Which means, I think, practically speaking, as we even enter into this uh, discovery today, there's no room that you've ever entered into, no country to which you can travel. There's no person that you've ever met or an institution that you've been part of where the Holy Spirit has not already been at work. Thanks. The Holy Spirit's already been at work. He's already been laying the groundwork, sometimes preparing uh, things and people and places for generations. There's no place where he hasn't been already actively pointing people to the goodness of God so that when the good news about Jesus does finally come, people are ready to hear it and respond and come into the family of Jesus. And I think knowing that, just knowing that fact right there, if that's the only thing you left with today, just knowing this makes a huge difference for us because when we're convinced the Holy Spirit is already at work, has already been present, has already gone in the room. I mean, first of all, it's a bit of a a relief because I hope that I'm not, you know, the person that has to figure out how to make everything happen when I enter in the room. To know that the Holy Spirit has already at work everywhere we go, no matter where we are. Well, then our part in what's happening changes, doesn't it? Our whole perspective. We aren't the initiators. I'm not walking in trying to make things start going. Rather, we are called to be participators, participating in and acting in response to what the Holy Spirit's already doing. So let's explore this a bit today. I'm going to just look at one story, a well-known story from Acts chapter 10. I think it'll help frame our conversation. Uh, this story in Acts chapter 10, story of Peter and a centurion named Cornelius, is a, you want to say it's an epoch-making story. Because we see in this story how the Holy Spirit finally brought together Two groups of people who had been separated, Jews and everyone else, the Gentiles, and bringing them together into the one family of God. Jesus had accomplished that fact on the cross, but now the Holy Spirit is realizing it on the ground, actually making the work of Jesus effective in people's lives. In the letters the Apostle Paul wrote, who's not in this story today, but in the letters the Apostle Paul wrote, he refers to this coming together of Jew and Gentile as God's big plan all along, an intention that God had, which can be traced all the way through the story, particularly starting with the original uh, covenant that God made with Abram, where he promised he'd bless Abram, but through Abram, he blessed all the nations of the world. And that intention was reiterated in various ways through the prophets and culminated in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Well, through this long trajectory of the story of Israel, the Holy Spirit was always aiming for the time when he would bring everyone back together into the family of God, the one people of God. And that long-awaited time here in Acts uh, Acts chapter 10, that time is now. This is the moment, and the story is captured here. And so I just want to read a few verses for you. And I want you to notice, as we're reading in Acts chapter 10, how the Holy Spirit was already at work. I'm reading from the New International Version, Acts chapter 10. I'll just read the first eight verses. So, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Uh, He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter, 
he is staying with Simon, the tanner, whose name is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Did you see how the Holy Spirit was already at work here in the life of Cornelius and his family? Did you see any of that? What are some of the ways that you saw that? And I invite you online, if you'd like to add that in the chat, um, what are some of the ways that you saw the Holy Spirit was at work in Cornelius and his family's life? Shout it out, and I'll repeat it for, the, for those who are uh, online. Some of the ways he's been at work, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the generosity, the heart of generosity, he's giving. That's right. The Holy Spirit has been at work in his life, and it's showing through the, his generosity. What else? A prayerful heart, yeah. He's been offering prayers, which the angel affirms. God has seen his prayers and his generosity, those two things in particular, as real signs that this, this is a man yearning for God, a man in whom God is working. That's right. What else? Anything else? He listened. Yes, absolutely. What else do you see? I mean, an angel showed up in a vision. That was, that's kind of a work of the Holy Spirit there, preparing him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Also, the, the, the long now, you know, millennia, but the, the witness of the Jewish people who were around him. I mean, he was attracted to the witness of Jewish people that would have been around him in his life. I mean, that's, that's what would have twigged him to this. And he was yearning for something he had seen but wasn't able to participate in in some way, but it was there as a work of the Holy Spirit through the witness of his people. So there was probably other ways, but it's really clear here that God had been at work. The Holy Spirit had been at work in the heart and the life of Cornelius and his household, even his soldiers, devout soldier. And God was at work there, preparing the way for Cornelius. That's beautiful. We find this uh, throughout Scripture. It's hinted at um, in other stories as well. I mean, um, the Holy Spirit often uses the majesty and the goodness of creation and people's experience of that to point them to God, to point them to God's generosity and care. In, In Acts chapter 14, this time Paul, he was speaking to some folks that were a bit backwoodsy, you know. Um, they, they weren't uh, in the intellectual center of the world. These were, you know, farmer types way out there in the, in the hinterlands. And he was sharing the good news with them about Jesus. And, and in doing that, he reminded them of God's prior care for them when he said, this is in Acts fourteen seventeen. he said, God has not left himself without testimony. And then this is what the testimony that Paul points to. He said, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. How's that for witness? The Holy Spirit has been at work pointing these people to his goodness and his grace just through the simple yet profound provision of rain and crops and food and joy. And we see through the story of Scripture and also the story of, of, you know, down through history, how the Holy Spirit often has worked through dreams. 
uh, through, through circumstances that people have, have it's set them up. Either they've been difficult circumstances or profound circumstances, set them up to see or to yearn or to, to move toward or to be open. We know, especially through uh, various missionaries who have, who have gone and, 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 and engaged with people who hadn't had any prior understanding of Jesus, how often the Holy Spirit had worked through cultural myths, stories of origin, through, through different encounters that they've had and set them up to be prepared to hear the story of Jesus from his witnesses when they came. The Holy Spirit at work through the heart longing of someone. And I think you see this even in Cornelius' life. But what we see is how the Holy Spirit was at work setting people up, setting places up, setting cultures up, setting families up so that they could perhaps be ready to receive the good news of Jesus when someone arrived to tell them about it. Now, I want you to listen to a more contemporary story of the same thing. This is the story, I've mentioned him to you before, and I've encouraged you to read his book before. Um, Nabil Qureshi, who sadly passed away of stomach cancer about age 40, um, he, he came to know Jesus from a devout Muslim family. And his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, I just highly recommend it to you. But it's a beautiful story, and I, he, he shared his story a lot on YouTube. It was hard to find a short enough clip, and even this one's eight minutes long. But I want you to hear a bit of his story, and as you hear it, watch for how the Holy Spirit was at work helping him find Jesus. Let's watch that together. Well, here we are, and we're back with an exciting interview uh, today with Nabil Qureshi. Again, he's the author of Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, A Devout Muslim Encounters Christianity. And I am really eager for Nabil, uh, for you to have your story share with our viewers today. And by the way, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's a privilege. Yeah, I'm so glad. And I have gotten to know you a little bit over the past couple of weeks as I've researched your story, read and really like your entire book here, and uh, delighted for our people to, again, hear and then be um, so encouraged with what has happened in your life for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Maybe we start with, um, tell the viewers a little bit about your background. You grew up in a devout Muslim and very loving American home. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, my parents are from Pakistan. I was born and raised in the States. And being that they're from Pakistan, it was their desire to raise a devout Muslim child here in the States. So growing up, I learned how to pray the five daily prayers, prayed them regularly. By the age of five, I had memorized the last seven chapters of the Quran and recited those regularly in my five daily prayers. And I actually finished the entire Quran recitation in Arabic by the age of five. So it was a very devout Muslim life. But my parents also came with some presuppositions about the West. Uh, they see the immorality. They see the, the, the way people uh, commit adultery. And they see things on TV and, and the immodest dress. And they impute all of that to Christianity because they see the West as a Christian area. Uh, so not only was it me practicing Islam, but they had also kind of taught me to defend myself against Christianity. Mm. And that's a common thing for Muslims around the world to come to the West with. And so growing up then, I was a devout Muslim, yes, but I was also trained with arguments to challenge and respond to the gospel. How did that affect your childhood then growing up compared to like other American kids? And you, you've kind of spoken that a little bit, but just flush that out a little bit more. Well, you know, what I really noticed was for us, Islam was our identity. Like we knew Islam, we were Muslim, and that's what we were representing wherever, I, wherever we went. Uh, my parents really had no choice. My mother, she would wear the burqa, so obviously whenever someone saw her, immediately they're thinking Islam. Uh, and I realized that the other kids didn't really own their faith. 
Yeah, they might call themselves Christian. Yeah, they might go to church, but that didn't affect the way they lived. It didn't affect the way they thought. And so that was something that made us even more proud. As Muslims, we thought we are following the true God. He affects and permeates every aspect of our lives. Whereas in the West, uh, people realize their faith is false, and that's why it doesn't really affect the way they live. That's kind of how we subconsciously thought. Mm-hmm. So then for um, your whole childhood, this is the, how you were brought up. This is your thinking. These were your convictions. Again, this was your identity, which really stuck with me as well. But there was one particular friendship that you developed, and maybe you can tell us what age that was and how that over time started to introduce you to Christianity. Absolutely. It was uh, something I did regularly was I would challenge people on the gospel. Uh, friends would say to me, Nabil, do you know Jesus? And of course, Muslims have a very developed view of Jesus. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe that he's a miracle-working man. He's sinless. Uh, Muslims believe Jesus is going to come back at the end of times. And so I would have a script ready to give, and I would challenge people on their view of Jesus. And by the way, how did, how did Christians generally do when you did challenge them on their faith? Miserably. <laughs> uh, what I realized I very early on was that even the slightest challenge on the Bible on the reliability or the compilation of the Bible or on Jesus' deity or on the Trinity especially. Uh, no one really knew more than uh, just enough to say what they were told to say. They didn't really know why they believed what they believed, didn't know how to defend it. And so as part of me honoring Islam, I would challenge Christians. Because you see, Muslims see uh, the Trinity as polytheism, and that's offensive to Muslims. And so in so challenging one specific Christian for the first time, and this is when I was a freshman in college, for the first time someone was able to actually respond to my challenge. Mm. And I realized this guy not only knows some information about his faith, but he actually cares about his faith. And so we developed this friendship that resulted from me challenging him on the Bible. And uh, that's how I began to get introduced to the power and truth of the gospel. Uh, his name was David. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And I love about in your book how you talk about David was uh, loving to you, patient with you, became a friend to you, which meant so much to you. It wasn't just this all just about this one conversation. There was more of the heart of Christ behind that. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I really do think that, uh, well, I believe what Jesus says. Jesus says that unless you're willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. So the gospel is not just, hey, do you want to be saved? Hey, do you want to live a better life? It's, are you ready to die for the sake of this message? And uh, that's something that requires someone to lay down their life. Now, if I'm telling someone, hey, lay down your life, but they don't know they can trust me, why would they ever listen to me? Mm. You need to have a relationship with someone when you're sharing the gospel with them, if they're going to hear it. Mm. Now, of course, I'm not saying that street preaching doesn't work. I've preached on the side of the street, too, and that does work at times. But by far and away, the most powerful way to share the gospel is through relationships. Right. So through this uh, friendship and relationship with this man, David, um, you were driven to a point of really... Uh, just a decision between Islam and Christianity. Tell us about how that happened and what happened. For a Muslim raised in the West, devout Muslims, a lot of it has to do with apologetics and with truth. What is the truth? Islam very clearly denies some things about Jesus. Yes, Jesus is miracle working. He's the Messiah. But it denies that he ever died on the cross. It denies that he ever claimed to be God. And if he never died on the cross, how did he rise from the dead? So Islam denies the death deity and resurrection of Jesus. Well, according to Paul, what do you need to believe in order to be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so the deity, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. The very three things Islam denies, you have to believe in order to be saved. And so for me, it was a matter of trying to prove that those things didn't happen in order to establish the case for Islam. Well, as I was trying to disprove those things, I realized the evidence for Jesus' death, deity, and resurrection was very strong. So that must have been, um, that must have been difficult for you again in your devout faith at the time, and all of a sudden some restlessness began? I didn't take, it wasn't overnight. It, it yeah. took years for me to see this evidence and for it to compile and for the tectonic shifts to happen in my mind. And uh, when I realized the evidence was strong, then I turned my eyes to Islam and I said, how strong is the evidence for Islam? And uh, to my shock, it was far weaker. When I leveled the same criticisms I had leveled on Christianity on Islam, the foundation fell apart. And so that's when it became a matter between me and God of actually asking him to show me the truth. So how did you actually come to Christ? Dreams were a fundamental part of what God used. And that's even, as Muslims grew up, they take dreams very seriously. Tell our viewers about that. It's fascinating and exciting. Well, for Muslims, most Muslims don't believe they can commune with God. Um, some modern Muslims do and some Sufi Muslims do, but generally in, in history and the way that Islam has traditionally been thought, taught, is, uh, God is kind of removed from you. And the only way you can really get guidance directly from him is through dreams. And Muslims uh, have a prayer, it's called Salat Istikhara, where they specifically ask God to give them dreams for guidance. And so I asked God for visions and for dreams, and I'm not alone in that. Approximately 50 to 70 percent of former Muslims who are now Christians came partially through visions and dreams. Wow. Well, uh, I had the interview stopped there. He goes on to talk about specifically the dream that was the difference, and so I encourage you to follow up with that. It's quite a story. Um, has anyone read that book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? Yeah. I highly recommend it. Um, but what did you notice? Just a little bit that you picked up from his story. How was the Holy Spirit at work in Nabil's life to bring him to a place where he was ready to receive Jesus? Uh, what did you notice? Go ahead and throw it out. Yeah, he was questioning. Absolutely. Yeah. What else? He was listening. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right, so that family of devotion and that commitment to truth, um, you know, th those are signs that the Holy Spirit was at work too, right? Absolutely, yeah. What else did you notice? Bringing David into his life. And uh, David plays such a key role in his life, and that's told in much more detail in, in the book. Absolutely. And the Holy Spirit... We'll, we'll touch on this in a minute. The Holy Spirit's work in David's own life, because Bill pointed out how David was the first person he ran into who, who didn't just crumble when he was challenged, but actually gave. So there was work that the Holy Spirit had done in, in David's life. What else did you notice? The movement of their family out, in his case, out of Pakistan into America, you know, yeah. And, and could it be that the movement of peoples in the world, that the Holy Spirit uses those um, movements, even though sometimes we acknowledge the displacement of peoples, which is a massive global challenge, uh, can be very heart-wrenching and tragic. The Holy Spirit can use those 
uh, to, to make it possible for them to hear the good news about Jesus. Yeah, what else? Cameron. Right, he turned the questions he had used to challenge the gospel now on his own faith and found it, yeah, and that, that was also a powerful way the Holy Spirit uh, brought him to see Jesus. Right, there was a humility there and a willingness to engage and then move through. And as he, he said in his interview, and you'll hear in the story, it did not happen overnight. It was a real gut-wrenching process. And uh, in his story and some of his subsequent stuff, very gut-wrenching for his family too, as you can imagine. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Yeah, he didn't just ignore it. He responded. Uh, the other uh, fairly obvious one would, of course, be dreams. He asked for it, and God delivered. I mean, you've you got to read the, in more detail the story and the way the Holy Spirit used the dreams that he gave to Nabil, even using, um, in the story, even using, like, they had a, uh, like an Islamic, like almost like a dream guidebook that helps you interpret dreams. And the way the Holy Spirit used that to use the dreams to point him to Jesus was absolutely stunning and how the Holy Spirit uh, was at work there. Um, Beautiful, beautiful. So I want you to hear that because I think uh, it's a great uh, example of the Holy Spirit being at work over a process of time, generations even, at work in someone's life, in someone's family. And uh, this this way in which the Holy Spirit is bearing witness, uh, pointing toward, uh, preparing the way so that people can respond to Jesus particularly when they then encounter it through um, one, of his, one of his people. So I, I hope that whets your appetite uh, to, to, to go further. Um, one of the things, of course, we see in Nabil's story, we see this in Cornelius' story, is that the preparing work of the Holy Spirit, the pointing work of the Holy Spirit, as absolutely crucial as it is, it actually um, doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't go far enough, but what we notice is the Holy Spirit points and prepares, but always then commissions a witness of some kind. Another one of his people. Usually direct, but there can be a lot of different ways. But by and large, even as Nabil pointed out, the role of that trusting friendship. But we see that that all this preparing and all this pointing is so that the gospel can be received when the person hears about it through, usually, through someone else who already follows Jesus, through the Holy Spirit's chosen witnesses. And by and large, that is how it happens. Nabil had David. David played such a crucial role in his life. But Cornelius had Peter. I mean, have you ever thought? I mean, if an angel can show up in a dream and get a guy to send people on a road trip to get someone to come, couldn't the angel have just said, let me tell you about Jesus? I mean, seriously, couldn't he have done that? Hey, I want to let you know about this guy named Jesus and blah, blah, blah. I could share the whole gospel message. Probably a bit better, actually. But he didn't. He didn't. He actually said, go and get this guy and he'll tell you what you need to know. 
And so the role of the church, the role of God's people, the role of other kids, God's men and God's women, to then come in is also a way that the Holy Spirit is at work to bring people to Jesus. And so let's go on with some of the Acts chapter 10 story and just see how this unfolds, how the Holy Spirit is also at work to prepare Peter. I won't read all of chapter 10, but um, here we go. So uh, the guys are on the road, they're coming, and about noon the following day after the angel showed up uh, to Cornelius, about noon the following day, uh, they were on their journey, they were approaching the city, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. He gets hungry, he wants something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Notice how the Holy Spirit is bringing it together to this exact moment. They called out, asking if Simon, who is known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them. Some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, this is a multi-day journey, he arrived in Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside, found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered by telling him his story, explaining it all over again. And Peter says in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead in the third day and caused him to be seen. He wasn't seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. 
All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then here it is, clincher to the story. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Circumcised believers, the Jews, Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Isn't that a beautiful story? Woo! Most of you are only here because the Holy Spirit had been at work doing just this. But you want to notice how the Holy Spirit wasn't only at work in Cornelius' life to prepare him. He was also at work in Peter's life. That vision with the sheet with all the filthy animals on it was no coincidence. The Holy Spirit knew that in his own framework, it would have been very difficult for Peter to go down and treat these people at the gate with the way that would have been conducive to the gospel let alone invite them in and then go with them and all that. It was hard enough as it was. The Holy Spirit had to take some dramatic measures to prepare Peter for what his role was going to be in the work the Holy Spirit was already doing in the life of Cornelius, right? Now, notice just a few things. And you'll see some crossover, I think, with things we already saw in Nabil's story. The Holy Spirit first does a work. I mean, I'm thinking about how the Holy Spirit prepares us the role the Holy Spirit has in us. One of the ways the Holy Spirit um, works in our lives is he reproduces in us and grows in us the Father's own heart for lost people. That, that there's, there's something that has to shift in us that we even have to acknowledge through the work of the Holy Spirit that we might have certain prejudices, uh, certain biases, certain ways of thinking of others who are far away from Jesus. The Holy Spirit needs to come and remove them or help us get around them so that we will go down to the gate and go somewhere without even knowing why, because the Holy Spirit is at work and he's calling us to obey. And that's one of the ways the Holy Spirit is preparing the way for people to find Jesus, in, uh, preparing the way in our lives, like preparing us for that, so we can participate. Because as we see in this story and in every other story pretty much, the Holy Spirit is bound and determined to use you <laughs> and me He wants us to participate in this work he's doing. In fact, he seems to hold back. He won't do it without us. And so he has to do a work in our hearts, reproducing in us a heart for lost people, a willingness to go, overcome, move. We also see how the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Jesus said he would do that. And in the case of Peter, The Holy Spirit was working now to bring Peter through to a greater, sharper, more expansive understanding of just what Jesus had done on the cross. And for us, helping us understand more, who is Jesus? Who is God? What does it mean to follow him? It was very clear in the story of Nabil that most of the Christians he met had not allowed the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. You know what I'm saying? They had, they had confessed certain things, they had said certain things, but it wasn't deep. And I know that's going to be a challenge for some of us too. We realize that I, I've said I believe this, I believe in the, like say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but if someone like a Nabil had challenged me, I'd crumble. You know what, you can just acknowledge that and then ask the Holy Spirit to guide you into greater truth of who Jesus is, of what it means to follow him, a greater understanding of the good news of Jesus because the Holy Spirit wants to use us to articulate that 
to share that, to help other people know Jesus. And one of the ways he does that is by guiding us into truth. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit sends us out. In the case of Peter, fairly dramatic. You get a trance, you get a vision, you get a, I mean, come on. But more generally speaking, this is exactly what Jesus did. He sent us out as his chosen witnesses. He told us in Acts chapter one, right? After the Holy Spirit has come on you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses for right from where you're starting in Jerusalem, surrounding area, into the world. The Holy Spirit sends his people out as his witnesses right into our daily lives, into our workplaces, into our homes, places where we recreate, places where we connect. You are a sent witness of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit not only sends us, but with the knowledge that wherever he sends us, he's already been at work. And then, of course, he gifts us with the authority, the power to actually point people to Jesus, to love them sacrificially, to be patient with them the way David was patient with Nabil, to be willing to travel with people sometimes for years, but being consistent and loving, bearing witness, an unashamed witness to Jesus in a way that the Holy Spirit is able to use to get around people's defenses and help them see Jesus for who he really is. It's beautiful. Well, practically speaking, how do we respond to that? I I guess the main thing for us today is I want us to hear and be able to, to kind of maybe reframe or maybe be reminded that wherever we go and, you know, whoever we see, we need to, first of all, have a stance that we assume, assume the Spirit's work, assume the Spirit's presence. And I think that helps us because I forget. Do you forget? I forget that in my neighbor's life or in the life of some guys I run with, or, or I, I forget that. And, and, and to be reminded that, hey, you know what? The Holy Spirit must be at work here. When I'm running with a guy and then he brings Jesus up and wants to talk about him, I can assume the Holy Spirit's at work there, right? So assume the Holy Spirit is at work. Let that assumption guide your heart, your mind, There's no place you go where the Holy Spirit has not already been at work. And we have a part to play in that, but it starts with our assuming it. The second practical thing is we can ask. We assume first, and then we ask. Ask the Holy Spirit to show us. What's going on here? Uh, Maybe maybe you won't know what's going on, but ask the Holy Spirit to, to help you. I mean, if he knows what's going on, even if you don't, if we're responsive to the Holy Spirit, then then the Holy Spirit can help you empower you to to be the witness that you need to be. Sometimes to speak, sometimes to shut up, maybe more often to shut up. Uh, Just to engage in a certain way, to follow up with someone. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, to lead you. Again, assuming that he's at work, say, Holy Spirit, please help me partner with you in what you are doing. We assume, we ask, and then the final thing is we act. We act under his authority. We don't need to, um, I mean, there will be times I think the Holy Spirit can say very directly like he did to Peter or others, you know, go here, do this. Let's be open to that. But if we just assume the Holy Spirit's at work and we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us like we've been talking, then I think with confidence, actually, we can act according to what we already know we're supposed to do which is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to to bear the fruit of the Spirit, 
to, to be involved in people's lives in a way that shows the care and kindness of their God. And in ways that sometimes will be obvious, sometimes not, to simply point people to Jesus with the way that we speak, with the way that we respond, the things that we reject, the gossip we reject and the, the words we won't use and the, the, the ways we won't treat others. But we act under the authority of Jesus knowing that everywhere we go, the Holy Spirit's at work. That's our assumption. We've asked him to fill us. Done deal. He said he would. Now let's act under his authority as his chosen witnesses. Assume, ask, and act. The Holy Spirit is at work. There is more going on than we realize. My hope and prayer for all of us is that as we go into our week, as you meet with family at some reunion this summer, as you engage with maybe some of our migrant workers this summer, as you talk to a new neighbor, friend, the Holy Spirit would be reminding us, I'm at work. Trust me. Follow my lead. And let's help people find Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing a closing song. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for your work. Something that spans generations, time. Our, our tiny sense of what's going on in the world, it, it, it so outstrips that. And I pray that you would give to each of us a deep confidence in your work. A deep confidence in your presence and your power. I pray that we'd be able to um, change our assumptions of what's going on around us. And even when we can't see it, maybe it's difficult to point it out. Would you fill us with confidence that you were at work even then? Change our assumptions, Lord. And we do ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit you would reproduce in us a heart for the lost. You would lead us and guide us into all truth and send us out as your chosen witnesses. Holy Spirit, we want to be part of what you're doing. We refuse to waste our lives. And we ask that you would enable us to participate in this grand work of bringing men, women, and children into your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.